Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com earnings right now. NetSuite.com earnings. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is Bloomberg Intelligence. The new tools that a metaverse can bring allows you to create more immersive content. Companies are beginning to sell less oil, more electrons. In-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. The supply chain breakdown is combining with labor shortages. Will Eastern manufacturers continue to dominate or will there be a renewed interest in Western manufacturers? Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Over the next hour, we're going to dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets. Each and every week, we provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide. Today, we're going to take a look at how Microsoft Teams is threatening Zoom's dominance in that video conference space. Plus, turmoil in biotechs could be good news for drug makers when it comes to M&A activity. But first, we want to take a look at tech stocks. Yes, it was a really rough first half of the year for tech stocks. Also this week, J.P. Morgan downgraded some of the big guys like Meta and Amazon, and those that are really dependent on ad advertising revenue. Let's get more on that with Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst Mandeep Singh. And Mandeep, let's start with Meta for a moment on that. Um, how do you see their ability to generate top line and also expand their profit margins? Can they do all that in a world where online advertising is starting to slip? Yes, so this is a really bad setup for Meta. And uh, the reason I say that is because you can see a saturation in both user growth as well as engagement. And, you know, you, it's a very competitive space now. I mean, when you think about digital advertising, for the longest time it used to be, you know, Google and Facebook and uh, now Meta. But now you've got TikTok really... Uh, I mean, gaining share not only in terms of the way they have expanded, you know, with regards to their user growth, but also time spent. So the way we think about it is if you have, uh, you know, time, time that you're spending on entertainment, whether it's Netflix or, you know, any of these social media platforms, there's finite amount of time. So if TikTok is gaining share, it's coming at the expense of Meta, Snapchat, Pinterest, and that's what we are seeing in the numbers. And which is why not only is the advertising environment bad and unfavorable for these companies, but also it's more competitive. And uh, that's why we think Meta will see a str some structural kind of headwinds in terms of their gross margin and 
operating margin as well. These stocks, Mandeep, have been such great top-line stories for such a long period of time. Give us a sense of kind of the growth in digital advertising over the next five years uh, versus the last five years. Yeah, so you're right. I mean, we've seen some phenomenal top-line and free cash flow generation from these companies. Now, digital advertising as a whole may be fine after this downturn, and we don't know if it will be a soft landing or a, you know, a really long recession, but digital advertising will come back and it will be a steady, you know, uh, low to mid-teens growth because there is that secular shift from uh, traditional TV ads to digital that will continue. But what Apple has done with IDFA is really thrown... What is IDFA again? So IDFA is their identifier for advertisers, and they've really taken away all the signals that these companies were using for ad targeting. And the reason why Facebook has been hurt more is because they were relying more on that signal. And now that that's gone away, that's really hurt their ad targeting efficacy. And, you know, they have to build a new way of targeting users. It's still better than the traditional ads, brand ads. It's more targeted. But uh, the overall loss of signal has hurt their ability to drive conversions when it comes to the ads that they're showing. We all knew this was coming. We all knew this was going to be a problem. Yet the stock still reacted pretty dramatically when it finally happened. Is this in the stock? Yes, I, I think that a lot of it is reflected in the valuation. But what could go wrong for Meta is, look, they were spending this additional $10 billion every year on building reality labs and metaverse, and now they have some structural issues with the core business because of competition, because of IDFA. So that can compound, you know, the uh, the gross margin headwinds that I alluded to before, and that may not be in the stock. Everyone assumes the core business is a steady, you know, 20 to 25 billion cash generator. Well, that may not be the case if they have to make these kind of changes and they have to spend so much on videos and creators. And, you know, they're completely redoing the platforms. It was all about the user graph. Now they are saying they will take the TikTok approach of pivoting to videos and leveraging more AI. They could do that. They have the resources, but it's a complete redesign of the app. And uh, that comes with a lot of risks. Yeah, I'm looking at the stock. Uh, it's down more than 50% on a trailing 12-month basis. That suggests to me. But but so are all of its peers. Quite frankly, 50 60 70% declines here. Is this a, a permanent re-rating downward by this market of these digital advertising companies? I don't think it's a given. It all depends on execution. And uh, look, you can't bet against Mark Zuckerberg given his track record and he's successfully navigated the mobile change when it did happen. So look, social media is all about scale and network effects. The fact is Facebook still has 2 billion daily active users on its platform. That's They have the scale. Now the question is, can they keep the engagement? The other thing that they're trying to do is do meta, like do a meta platform and stuff. Do we know how they could monetize that yet? I know that's asking a lot because they're still trying to figure out what meta is, but can they monetize it? Well, so right now their whole play is to drive the install base for Oculus. Last year, they did over 10 million units. We think, you know, with the consumer spending slowing down, that could hurt the unit installs this year, the shipments. And look, they are actually subsidizing a lot of the cost for the Oculus device. They're actually selling it below the cost price of the device. So what Facebook or Meta is really after is to drive install base before 
Apple launches its own uh, mixed reality headset device. Maybe Google does it as well. So they want they have a head start, and they really want to build on it, which is why they are subsidizing that headset. But spending environment we are in, we think the consumer spending will go down on these devices. So that may be a, somewhat of a headwind in the near term. We still don't even know what it is yet. Um, Mandeep, <laughs> thanks a lot. Mandeep Singh, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst. Coming up on the program, the war in Ukraine is making companies think twice about their share buyback plans. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BIGO on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 13 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way. A brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before. Tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. All right, the war in Ukraine. And macroeconomic uncertainty could prompt a reassessment of the near $30 billion of share buyback plans announced by European banks after regulatory caps were removed last year. To get more on that, we bring in Bloomberg Intelligence analyst Philip Richards. So, Philip, first lay out kind of what happened in terms of the return of capital plans for a lot of the European banks and, and how that might change. 
Yeah, hi there. Um, yeah, it's been a bit of a, a round circle, actually. Um, back at the end of last year, um, a number of the restrictions which are put on the banks um, by the regulators um, to build up capital as a sort of buffer during the um, pandemic were removed at the end of last year. So suddenly you had this whole wave of banks saying suddenly the pandemic's largely over. We've got a big, big build-up in capital bases, and therefore we're going to start using that to return it to shareholders. So that was a whole range of banks that announced these big share buyback programs, so totaling over $30 billion. Um, and that was very much what was intended to happen this year. And of course, since the developments in February, um, what's happened now is that the risks for the economic outlook in, in Europe have deteriorated sharply. And what any regulator will say, if the risks have got worse, and the one thing that banks have to do is hold on to their capital as if it's a buffer against any rise in bad debt. So what we're saying is, no, yes, there are bigger issues to look at due to the war, look at the economic risk, look at rising interest rates, et cetera. But don't forget also, I think the share buybacks could actually be reeled in, and that could be a bit of a blow for the sector as well. And so we've already seen the sector fall 25% um, since the war began, and this is an, another blow which could hit them. Philip, let me ask, in terms of um, where the exposure is, is it to direct aid to Ukraine that there's a is it indirect? Um, is it to say Russia? Is it just the economic downturn? Is it relation to energy companies and gas companies? Where specifically is the exposure where banks would get most hurt? Yeah, it's a very fair question. The, the direct exposures to Russia are actually very limited. About five or six banks had some you know what you call material operations. Um, already you've seen half of those banks sell those assets already. So, for example, Sockgen. Um, sold off um, their subsidiary there, Ross Bank, and we've seen several others exiting as well. So that says so it's only down to about two or three left, which have that direct exposure. And what we're really talking here is about indirect exposure, about what happens to the economy overall. Because we're all hitting a massive increase in inflation. That's a global phenomenon. Um, and what's happening as a result of that, interest rates are going up. And of course, if interest rates are going up, people's mortgages cost a lot more. Um, companies' um, debt they're holding generally go up more. So first of all, the actual financial squeeze on both corporates and, and people has obviously got a lot worse. And that's basically where this risk is coming from. So how bad will it be? And well, that kind of depends on how severe the recession I mean, if it comes across Europe. If it's a mild recession, then, of course, it's not going to be so, so grave. But if it's a much more severe recession, a much bigger slowdown, then that has a much bigger impact in terms of those increase in bad debts to the banks. So when you speak with institutional investor clients and that specialize in investing in banks, what do you think the market's discounting here in terms of you know the European economy uh, over the next six to twelve months, eighteen months? I think it's a bit of a risk that we don't if you don't know what's going to happen. And a lot of people thought, well, why are you holding one way one of the most risky um, stocks there are in Europe because you know, banks are so geared to the economic environment. And if you don't know what's happened, and a lot of investors decide, look, I can't assess the risk. No one knows, but I'm just going to sell and get out. And that's what we've seen. So the bank sector is down 25%. You've got a number of the big banks, you know, like the SocGen, Unicredit, trading down at 0.4 times book or just four times earnings. Now, these are real low valuations. Um, so as you say, you know, how bad is the recession going to be? We know we face recessions um, every, what, eight, ten years for, for, you know, for many years. So is it looking that severe recession? No. It's more a case that people just don't know. They know there's risks out there. They are fear what the regulators are going to do. We saw the regulator when we went into the pandemic, there was a sudden ban on all dividends and share buybacks. Mm -hmm. So what will happen now if we go into a session again, maybe the regulator will do the same. What about ECB hiking rates? The theory, at least for the U.S., is when that happens, that's good. You get a more net, incre um, net interest income, a steeper yield curve, yada, yada, yada. Is that panning out in the same way? It absolutely is. And say so the two big impacts, the main ones people are looking at, first of all, exactly what you say, interest rate hikes going up, that's an absolute massive benefit for banks. 
Um, we're seeing some of the banks getting um, net interest income, which is about half the, the revenues of banks, going up by 8 to 10 percent to the upgrades. So these are huge numbers, you know, driving about 50, um, 10, 15 percent profit upgrades to the banks. But of course, that is being directly offset by those rates, same interest rates going up. That has the negative effect on the bad debt level. So you do have these sort of contrasts. And Opal's um, earnings per share have been actually relatively stable. They've come down a bit since the, um, since the war's announced. So, you know, pretty marginal. And certainly on paper, wouldn't justify the size of those share price declines we're seeing. You know, I'm looking at your research note. I'm seeing dividend yeah. yields for some of these European banks, 8 9 10%. How sustainable yeah. is that? Well, normally when you get dividends going above 5% and certainly going to the 7 8% you mentioned, it's basically people saying well, there's a severe risk that that dividend won't happen. Because if you were very confident that dividend is going to get paid, you know, 8% return is very high for any asset. Um, so the bottom line is people are saying these dividends are at risk. Um, and that's just an interesting comment coming from the head of the um, supervisory board at um, the ECB today, saying they are going to make um, the banks factor in you know, if Russia does cut off the gas mm-hmm. and the impact that has on the economy and therefore put that into your capital planning. So the bottom line is exactly you know, what you're applying there. Those dividends are at risk. And certainly you know, that's what we're trying to show in this note. Um, and if a bank needs to cut payouts, it's easy to cut um, buybacks before you do dividends because um, buybacks are seen as more of a flexible buffer, as it were. Well, to that point, um, aren't we going to get next week also a stretch test for climate uh, from the ECB on banks? And I'm wondering how you think that's going to impact their ability to pay stuff out. Yeah, I mean, it's uncertain what's going to come there. There have been talks about what's going to come through. Now, we are quite at an early stage in terms of actually doing a sort of financial assessment for that. So, I just think, given the amount of risks we've got going on in the sector and the uncertainty, I'd expect quite a lot of rhetoric and a lot of comments about what banks need to do over the next X number of years. But is it going to lead to a direct increase in capital climbs at this stage? I think that's um, very unlikely. So I think from the moment, say, it'll be more about talk and what needs to happen over a medium-term view, as in rather than anything um, you know, immediate. So, Philip, not all banks are created equal. Any banks you identify that might be most at risk to... You know, buyback reductions, dividend cuts, that kind of thing? Well, as well, talking about interest rates going up and what's called the sovereign sort of doom loop um, in terms of, you know, the, the risk of the yields on sovereign debt going up and the impact that has on the banks as well. Um, so it's not just this one factor together. And on that basis, you know, where were you seeing the sovereign yields rising on, on that debt? It's for the Italian, the Spanish banks, because that's where, the, you know, the, the public debt, the government debt is highest. And a large amount of that is held by the banks. So it's not a case of just looking directly at the, the buybacks at risk, it's looking at the, you know, the wider economy, the wider you know, countries where the banks are operating in. So certainly I think you would say the immediate point of view, whatever going on, the Italian and the Spanish banks would be the most likely. And that's certainly where you're seeing those yields getting very high. Yep. Good, good stuff. Uh, Philip Richards, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst, talking to us about those European banks. All right, coming up on the program, Emerson Electric is set to power past and boost targets. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BIGO on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. And I'm Alex Steele. It's 25 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. We'll be here each and every week at this time tapping into Bloomberg Intelligence analysts covering some 2,000 companies and 130 industries worldwide. 
Well, many are talking about how for the back half of the year, earnings estimates are going to have to come down. Profit margins are going to have to come down. One company, though, that might stand out and not have to do that is Emerson Electric. It designs and manufactures electronic and electrical equipment, software, systems, and services. And they're actually doing really well, despite their stock being hammered so far this year. Uh, joining us now with more is Karen Ubelhart, a senior industry analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. All right, give me the reason why I should be powered up on Emerson. A uh, couple of things. Uh, one, they are very energy uh, um, exposed, 23% of sales. Their biggest business, which has been lagging, two-thirds of the company now has an opportunity to benefit from higher CapEx. Um, uh, number two, they're on their way to beating all their 2023 targets. They're ahead of schedule. They're already meeting the margin target for this business, the energy-related business that's just coming to turning around. They have a record backlog, and they're about to complete a $650 million savings program. So there's a lot of upside in. They have a day, an analyst day in November. They'll raise all their expectations and the financial uh, targets. So, talk to us about the cost side, uh, Karen. We see we hear about you know inflation impacting margins for companies across many many industry verticals. Talk to us about Emerson and their margin outlook. Emerson had a an activist come about three years ago uh, to tell them to get their act together on costs. They went to the drawing board and are doing structural takeouts across the board in the company. It actually started in 2019, and their margins have exceeded expectations, and they're not done. So there was pressure to do that. They did it, and they're now seeing the benefits of that, and they've got one more year to go. What are some, going to be some of the extra catalysts we have to think about? Capital spending, particularly on the upstream side, is expected to be up over 20% this year and another 10% next year. That's big kicker for Emerson um, in the automated solutions business. I think both those numbers could be low because they've been underinvesting for a number of years. There'll also probably be some help on the refining side, but for them, the upstream side right now is the most important. Mm-hmm. Secondly, they have record backlog in that business, and again, $6.4 billion backlog, and again, it's just started to turn. So there's a lot that becomes sales. It's a long cycle business. Everybody's very worried about the more short cycle stuff because of a recession. Their automated solutions is all CapEx driven. It's not just energy, it's chemicals, it's other things, but that tends to hold up better in the early part of a downturn. And I think the numbers are too low. I looked at how much automated solutions grew in the last four energy CapEx cycles, and it grew 16%, 13%, you know, double digit. Consensus right now has that segment growing at about 7%. I went through different scenarios. I used 13% as the mid-range, and I come up with a 9% above consensus EPS, and I think there's probably upside. So uh-huh. estimates are already starting to drift up, but I think they can drift up more. Talk to us uh, about valuation, Karen, here. I'm looking at the stock. It's down about 14% year-to-date, but that's outperforming the S&P 500, which is down a little bit more than 20%. How does valuation look here? Emerson has underperformed on a three and a five year, and this is the first year they've actually outperformed. And I think some of that is people saying, wait a minute, they're in the right, they're in the automated solutions is in the sweet spot. It's time for them to turn. This new CEO is really executing. So you're starting to see people warm up to it. Energy is nothing if it's not cyclical. And I understand that this time, structurally, we may be in a different place with energy. If it is still cyclical, in a year, are we going to be talking about how Emerson's appropriately priced and that their cycle's not going anywhere? Well, this is usually a multi-year turn. I mean, if if energy broke under sixty again, I'd be telling a different story. Mm-hmm. You know, but if it, but if it stays up here, you know, these are usually multi-year cycles, and uh, I would expect that it would continue beyond one year. Obviously, if you have a terrible recession, all bets are off. But um, you know, a modest short recession, I don't think would choke off the energy spending cycle since it's been deferred so long, as long as energy prices stay at a reasonable level. 
Karen, these big companies, these big conglomerate companies that uh, you've covered for decades, a lot of times some of the parts is a good valuation. Have you looked at that as an analysis for this company? Uh, yeah, I did. I did that um, early early on, and I, I've updated it recently. But I think that there is an argument over the longer term to break their two businesses up. Automated Solutions is is they are doing a lot of acquisitions in that business to diversify it away from being deeply you know energy sensitive or processing sensitive. They're getting into software and other businesses. The other business is HVAC related. They're not related in any way. They create a balance, but they could easily be uh, separated. The HVAC business is very um, energy, any um, uh, climate sensitive, and so th that sector has done extremely well in terms of organic growth. It's exceeded peers in terms of profitability, in terms of pricing. So I think that there'll be a time when it's time to sell that CRS business, and it's not out of the realm of reason. I don't think they'll do it now. They like they like the uh, earnings they're getting out of it, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's earning 26% operating margins, but they are different businesses, and the, the guy who's running it now is from Automated Solutions. Every bit of investment in M&A has been in Automated Solutions, so that's where he wants the company to be and grow, and I think there'll be a time for that split. And I think right now there's about 20% upside mm -hmm. using peer multiples for the two different businesses. All right, Karen, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Karen Ubelhart, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst. Coming up on the program, Microsoft Teams is threatening Zoom's place atop the video conferencing mountain. You are listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 39 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade. Unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way. 
a brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before. Tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Well, the pandemic has certainly changed the way we work, the way we educate uh, our kids. Video conferencing, that's been a big winner. And, you know, a new term kind of came into the vernacular. Let's Zoom. Uh, Mm -hmm. But let's take a look at a competitor, Microsoft Teams. That's out there. And for a lot of folks, that's big and it's getting even bigger. Let's check in on that business with Bloomberg Intelligence analyst John Butler. So, John, talk to us about kind of the video conferencing business, kind of what the market shares are here, what the growth rate is here, and kind of how it's playing out. So, still a great business, Paul. You know, I think a lot of people were worried sort of as COVID goes from pandemic to an endemic uh, disease that everyone would come rushing back in the office and and all that strong demand we saw for these video conferencing systems would evaporate. And the reality is the market has remained strong here and will continue to remain strong, growing probably double digit through 23 at least. But Microsoft really, hats off to them, has come on very very strong with Teams. I think the issue for a strong competitor like Zoom is that Microsoft is not only bigger, but they've been able to incorporate Teams licenses in with their Office 365 sales. So as Zoom increasingly tries to move from being a very strong competitor tender in the consumer space into building its business in the enterprise space, it's running more and more into resistance from Microsoft Teams. Aside from just basic video conferencing, what else can like a Zoom or Microsoft Teams add with the bells and the whistles to kind of one up the other as Zoom tries to move into that space? That's a great question, Alex. I mean, that's Zoom's single biggest uh, challenge right now is they are trying to transform from a point product video meeting provider to a full unified communications provider, you know, offering whiteboard collaboration where people can, from remote, work on the same documents, do cloud-based contact center. So even small businesses need to manage incoming calls from customers and assign calls to different reps and so forth. And they need to add that. They have chat. In fact, last week, they just introduced Zoom One, which is an enterprise-grade product that incorporates a lot of these features we just talked about. But there's more to come. I think it's one of those offerings, whether it's Teams or Zoom, fast forward five years and we look back at how far collaboration software, particularly on the business side, has come. And I think we'll all be surprised at the evolution that we're about to undergo here over the next three to five years. Yeah, I'm looking at that. You got a great great chart in your research note, looking at monthly active users amongst the competitors in you know, right at the beginning of the pandemic, Zoom had a 67% market share. And uh, as of April 2022, that's down to 42%. And Teams was a big winner. Google Meet was a, a big winner there. 
how do you compete if you're Zoom against these giant companies that have just so much muscle and, and can really integrate it with some of their existing businesses? Honestly, Paul, the easy answer is two things. If you lack scale, you want to have a strong brand name, and Zoom literally has that incredible, incredibly strong brand cachet when it comes to you know collaboration software. Their strength, though, is in the consumer space, not in the business segment, which is where the growth is shifting to. And so their next challenge will be, again, uh, to broaden out that product line to include new features like chat, phone, email, and cloud-based uh, contact center. I think ultimately for Teams or Google or Zoom, the real opportunity lies in displacing the PBX uh, phone systems, the business-grade phone systems that are on all our desks. And I think we're headed that way. I think people actually prefer meeting over Zoom as opposed to picking up the phone these days. Oh, my God. Totally. And, <laughs> and there are 400 million installed PBXs out there, I think. That was the latest estimate we had working, uh, I think, from IDC. So there's a lot of opportunity there for not just Zoom, but everyone in the space to really displace that hardware. So. I know this might seem like an out there question, but I'm looking at the market cap. It's 32 bill for a Zoom. The stock, though, is nearing its IPO price. What is the appetite for another big tech company to partner with or buy them so they can basically just take out that competition when they're trying to do it internal anyway? So we've been saying that this really is an overcrowded space. I mean, there really are a lot of companies, some that you've never even heard of, that are offering this video collaboration software. Zoom just happens to be one of the most visible. But, you know, again, that that transformational challenge that they face, the transformation that they're undergoing from a point product company to that well-diversified collaboration vendor, would almost be better served, perhaps, if it's lar- part of a larger organization that can compete more head-to-head with Microsoft or Google. Having said that, I want to stress that I really think the brand strength here is strong enough and Zoom is big enough to invest their way into maintaining or maybe even gaining some share in the enterprise segment, again, where where the growth is shifting to. So. I don't think they're the kind of company that needs to get bought out, but on the other hand, they would represent an attractive candidate for a much larger company like, say, a telecom to come in and basically merge Zoom's capabilities with internal capabilities that would leverage or provide, in the case of a telecom, the back-end infrastructure to support that collaboration business. John Butler, thanks so much for joining us. John Butler, Bloomberg Intelligence uh, Telecom Analyst. We turn now from video conferencing in that world to biotechs and the impact on drug maker deal making. More, we want to welcome Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst Michael Shaw. Michael, the Bloomberg Nasdaq Biotech Index has had a terrible year so far. I mean, it's definitely in a bear market, down 20% from the start of the year, and we're off the lows. What does that do? Does that create some opportunities in the space? How do you look at it? I mean, I think the environment at the moment is particularly tough for small biotechs. Um, so we've got rising interest rate, we've got rates, we've got a tough IPO environment, and that could potentially lead to financing challenges for some of these smaller biotechs. And and because of that, that's a potential opportunity um, for some of the larger larger drug makers. 
Many of them have got significant amounts of cash on their balance sheet. Obviously, some will be better placed than others to do deals. But looking at the large, large cap pharma and mature U.S. biotech companies in the U.S. and Europe, I mean, they've got about $190 billion worth of cash and equivalents on their balance sheet. Average leverage ratios are below one. So there's balance sheet flexibility there. So there's significant capacity um, to do deals. And while we think that, you know, opportunities will arise, we think that they're going to remain disciplined in their approach to deals. And we don't believe there'll be kind of a marked change in in their M&A strategy in terms of the assets and the size of deals that they're looking for. Mikey, I've always said when I come back in my next life, I want to be a healthcare M&A banker because it seems like every Monday we come in, one of your companies or Sam Fazelli's big pharma companies are buying something, okay? So my question is, do the big pharma companies, do they ever, how do they allocate money between, I want to go out and buy a technology, a company, a drug versus develop it in-house? How do they do that? And how has that changed? I mean, pipeline failures within within their own pipeline would create kind of an urgency for deals. So, for example, if we look at Biogen, Adahem on the Alzheimer's launch, that's underwhelmed. Texadera, they, they lost their U.S. patent on, on Texadera. So there's a huge hole there that they need to plug. So that kind of creates, you know, an appetite for these larger drug makers to go out and look for deals. Other reasons for, you know, acquiring a company is, you know, it might not be in an area that they're active in, but it's an area that they want to get in. So they acquire the technology in order to get into that area. So I think there's loads of different kind of motivating factors behind why a company would do a deal and and what sort of deal they're looking for. But in terms of, you know, general commentary from the large caps, I mean, most of them seem to be at the moment looking for bolt-ons and in-licensing over transformative Mm -hmm. M&A. Um, And most of them are also looking to expand within existing core competencies or therapy areas. So if I am a really smart PhD biotech kind of geek and I find and I develop what I think is a great new drug, is my game plan to try to just get far enough along my trials that I sell to a big, a Merck or something, or do I want to go public? What, how's that trend today? What's my exit? What's my, where do I get paid? I mean, at the moment, I think the IPO, IPO market is particularly tough. Um, so, I mean, an exit strategy would be would be M and A. I mean, or, or you can you know, or you can out license the asset as well. Um, I mean, the the reason for doing that would would obviously be to um, benefit from the infrastructure of a larger drug company. You'll and usually what happens in these deals is you'll get an upfront upfront fee, so cash in hand um, when you sign the deal. And then there'll usually be some sort of performance-related kind of milestone. So milestones when you when you enter in, well, when you advance in the stages of trials, and then royalty-based um, payments on sales, assuming assuming it um, it makes it to, to market. Um, so I think I mean in light or out licensing an asset um, is certainly kind of an an exit strategy. When we look at licensing deal trends, um, so the data is available on the terminal. I mean, we've seen a consistent increase in licensing activity over the last few years. The run rate this year trails trails these last year, though, and that's explained by a lower number of deals in the infection infectious disease space and vaccine deals, uh, which obviously in 2020 and 2021 right. surged on kind of the collaborative efforts against against COVID-19. So yeah, I mean M and A or, mm-hmm. or outlicensing are, are you know potential exit routes for you know for these five types. 
Hey, Michael, thanks a lot. You laid out the roadmap for Paul perfectly uh, on that. This is his next job. Uh, Michael Shaw, <laughs> exactly. Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst, joining us there. That's this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. And remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BIGO on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 57 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.